We're in Exodus 14, and uh, if you're just joining us, or you've just joined us recently, we're in the middle of the story, actually, the story of God's redeeming his people uh, from slavery. And uh, we, we should have thought, if you were here last week, that we've hit the climax of the story. We've been in a battle, Pharaoh versus God, Yahweh, the God of his people, and it seemed like last week the decisive blow was struck, a death blow to Pharaoh's firstborn son and all their firstborn of Israel, and God's people march out freely. It must have been a wonderful celebration, quietly marching out at night into freedom. And yet, like some strange horror movie tonight, uh, Pharaoh seems rises up from the dead almost, it seems, uh, to do battle one more time. And in a horror movie, then this happens, the first thing that happens is panic and fear. We'll see that. And then what happens, of course, is a fight to the death. And we're going to see that as well. So I'm going to read Exodus 14. It's uh, 31 verses. It's a bit long, but uh, the action's pretty awesome. So let's, uh, let's follow along. Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pahiharoth and between Migdal and the sea in front of Belzephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I'll get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know I am the Lord. So they did so. When the king of Egypt was told the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What's this we've done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot, took his army with them, took six hundred chosen chariots, and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea by Pahiroth and in front of Belzephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. The Egyptians shall know I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. There was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. The waters were divided. People went through in the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. The Egyptians said, 
Let's flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. As the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this uh, story, and we pray that there will be much more than that to us. Press the reality, the historical truthfulness of this text, convince us of it, uh, and its lessons for us into reality in our hearts, we pray. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, one of my favorite groups is a band called Tame Impala. Anyone ever listen to them besides me? I didn't think so. Yes, that's because I made you listen to it. Uh, they're this crazy Australian psychedelic band that probably has done way too much acid. Uh, but that's not why I'm telling you this. It's because the phrase tame impala is interesting. If you've ever been to a zoo and seen an impala, they're these cute little small creatures. And yet what you probably don't know is they have the ability to jump 10 feet straight into the air in a distance of 30 feet. Yes. And so you wonder, of course, why then are they fenced in behind a fence that's three feet high, right? If you've seen an impala, they're in an open field behind a three-foot fence. It's because an impala refuses to jump where it cannot see where it lands. It's afraid. It will not jump where it cannot see where it will land. And in many ways, we're like this. If we're Christians, we are free, and yet we do a terrible job of living freely. We don't uh, do a very good job of uh, trusting God to see beyond what lies beyond the wall. We fear what we do see, the tiny wall. We fear what we can't see on the other side, the uncertainty. We, our fears go deeper. We fear God may not be with us where we are. We forget what God's already done for us. Freedom is there for the having, and yet most of us continue to live the same kind of lives we've always lived. We fear making the leap. And Moses, uh, in the midst of Israel's fear and forgetfulness in our text, has a very sharp word for the Israelites. It looks like encouragement in 13 and 14. Actually, the last phrase in 14 where it says, you have nothing to do but keep silent, it's actually a really forceful rebuke. It is basically him telling them, would you just shut up? So to be a little more pastoral than Moses, what we need to see tonight is that we need to shut up and see the salvation of God. All right, and I'll, and I'll explain what I mean by we have to shut up. But we need to shut up and see the salvation of God. And what we need to see are three things. That God's at work in strange circumstances. He's at work in strange circumstances. He's at That God himself is present and that God saves completely. So God's at work in strange circumstances. This will be the longest point. The other two will move much more quickly. And uh, it doesn't take much observational skill to notice in the first four verses that God has sort of a crazy plan. Uh, the, Israel, the Israelites have been set free. They have a direct course to Canaan if they want to go. And God takes them on a long cut. It's a very long cut. And he actually leads them uh, out to a place where they are completely and totally trapped. So much so that Pharaoh says, they're trapped. I should pursue them. What have I done? 
He decides to chase them. It's a crazy plan. It's a puzzling military strategy for a bunch of people that can't fight. And uh, God has a plan. It's a bit crazy. It reminds me uh, of sort of the attitude of uh, U.S. I almost feel bad using this illustration because if there's a Marine in here, they should smack me around for even mentioning Chesty Puller, the greatest Marine of all time. Chesty Puller uh, was this remarkable man and leader, and he's uh, known for this quote. All right, they're on our left. They're on our right. They're in front of us. They're behind us. They can't possibly get away this time. That was his attitude. And um, in some ways, it seems like God has a similar plan. Let's, let's set a trap for them by completely getting ourselves surrounded. And then uh, God will go after his cause. There's a cause here behind this plan, and that's to get glory. See it in uh, verse 4. I will harden his heart, he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and his hosts. What God's after here is proper recognition. Earlier in the book, uh, God sent Moses to Pharaoh and said, hey, let my people go. Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Who is this God? Pharaoh set himself up as the anti-God throughout the book. And God's saying, uh, you're going to know who I am. You will know who I am. You will give me my proper recognition. And by the time I'm done with you, not only will you know who I am, uh, but I will be renowned. People will know what I've done to you and through you. And it's true. In verse 25, the Egyptians themselves, once they realize the battle is lost, once they realize God's fighting for them, they flee and say, Yahweh is fighting for them. We should get out of here. We, he's won this. So God has a cause, and the cause is his own glory, and he seeks his glory by the complete conquest of these uh, enemies. Pharaoh goes out with the highest military technology of the day, the chariot. It may seem a little quaint to you, uh, but at the time there was nothing like it. And uh, Pharaoh in his mighty chariots versus a bunch of civilians led by an old man with a stick. I mean, that's what it looks like. Except for the reality, it's, it's Yahweh, the creator and redeemer, versus Pharaoh, the anti-God. This is Pharaoh, the king who opposes God. This is the institution, the kingdom of Israel, that cast Israelite baby boys into the Nile to drown them because they were opposed to what God had planned for Israel to be a blessing to the nations. And so God is after their complete conquest. And he does it, as I've said before, he does it sort of in their backyard. He takes their strengths and shows that it's really his strengths. Pharaoh is supposed to be a divine son of the sun god, Ra. So it seems like God waits till dawn to strike the final blow. Pharaoh threw Hebrew babies into the water and saw them die. So God decides to execute his judgment by means of water. Uh, he's showing that he is the real king, the only king, and he gets justice and glory in their complete conquest. The problem in the text is that the people are completely clueless. The people are clueless. Uh, they don't know God's plan. They don't see God's plan. What they see is this army pursuing them. What they see is uh, this person, Pharaoh, who's owned them cruelly for generations, pursuing them. And what they do is they fear greatly, verse 10 says. And then verse 11 and 12, we see that they complain creatively. I heard someone chuckle when I read it. And it's because it's pretty funny. Uh, is it because there are no graves in Egypt, you've taken us away to die? The reality is there's all kinds of graves. It's possible these slaves built some of those famous large graves, the pyramids, for Pharaoh. It's also very likely that uh, some of these people buried their small children 
the result of genocide. It was as a result of what Pharaoh had done to them. There are graves there, and they've forgotten that. And uh, they, in verse 12, say it's, it's better if we just stayed there and served Pharaoh than, than die out here. And what they're doing is living in light of the worst possible reality. The battle's not started. They've forgotten that God has redeemed them mightily and bought them out. They act like it's over. Living in light of the worst possible reality. And what we see, uh, besides the fact that God's at work for his glory and their good, is that they're clueless because in some ways they've been institutionalized. Now, institutionalized is a phrase that's explained really well by Morgan Freeman in the character Red in Shawshank Redemption. So uh, Red is explaining the phenomenon of this older guy who got out and committed suicide because he couldn't cope. And he basically is explaining institutionalized is this. These walls, prison walls, they're funny. First you hate them, and then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you come to depend on them. That's institutionalized. And in some ways, the people of Israel have been institutionalized by their captivity. They can't see anything at this moment besides the might of Pharaoh and the security of slavery. They can't remember what God has already done in powerfully redeeming them. They can't remember what he has done. They can't see what he's done. They can't see what he's doing. And they can't imagine what he will do. All they see is his might and the security of their slavery. Though they are free, they're still free. They're out here. They're out of Egypt. Their hearts are captive. And the reality is we're all like that. We've been institutionalized by sin. Some of us, frankly, are still on the inside of the walls. We've never broken out of the prison of sin. But if we've been set through through trusting in Jesus, it's often the case that we still struggle and forget. If you will, we've been set free, and then in our freedom we go and rebuild the walls in our minds, in our fears. The reality is we should see more than just the walls. We should have more than just the fear. So here's a little advice for you, and it's basically Moses' advice. You need to shut up. Now, I don't mean to be rude. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm actually just saying what Moses said, although it's not in the midst of battle, so maybe I am being a bit rude. But the shut up I'm talking about in particular is not that you should stop talking. It's that you need to stop complaining, especially if you're a Christian and you know you've been set free. Because what you're complaining is doing is blinding you to the fact you've been set free. You are living, most likely, in light of the worst possible reality. Your complaining is about things you fear. It really is. It's about things. If you chase your complaints deep enough, they will show you the gods and the idols that you fear. No one will love me. I can't control my life. I don't know if God's really in control. I don't know what I'm going to do next. Chase it far enough down and you'll see what really matters to you. The walls that you're still serving and living inside of. You need to stop your complaining. Stop that rehearsal so that you can see what God is doing. Because you're complaining, your rehearsal is blinding you to what God has done and setting you free. And it's blinding you to what God wants for you. So you need to shut up. I'm not saying none of you have bad things in your life that you really need to talk about and complain about. That's not what I'm talking about. Actually, you need to share some of those things, actually. But the daily complaining, the rehearsal of your grievances, of living in the light of the worst possible reality, it's got to stop so that you can see what God has done. We need to see, contrary to what we believe, that we're not alone, that God is present. These last two points will move much more quickly. 
If we look, if we stop complaining, if the Israelites could just look up and see, they would see God is present. He is present. He's present here in this text in the form of a cloud, a pillar of fire. He's actually been present with them for some time. He's acted as a guide for them, and he's still doing it. In verse 19, we read that he's the angel of the Lord in the midst of the cloud guiding them. In verse 24, we read it's actually the Lord himself who's in the cloud. God himself has been personally present in this fancy theological word, theophany. He's visibly manifested himself for the benefit of the people in order to guide them, to lead them. He's personally present with them as a guide. And also as a guard. See that in verse 19 and 20? He's been leading them. And in the midst of the battle, when the battle's about to start, he actually changes positions uh, like a loving father. When his child is threatened, he moves from leading in front to coming behind in order to protect his child from a salt from the rear. He's basically acting as a buffer in order to confuse the Egyptians and to protect his people. He's personally protecting them. God is present as guide and guard. But there's one other bigger point that I want us to see about here how God is present. And that's that he's present in the mediator Moses. And in very uh, strange but important ways. Uh, look at verse 15. It's up there. It is. It says, um, do, 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 do. Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Excuse me? I mean, Moses could have stopped and said, pardon? I haven't complained at all. It's actually you. First, it's a, it's a second person singular. He's not talking about Israel. He's talking to Moses directly. I promise. <laughs> yeah, some of you don't believe me. Uh, Moses says, like, I, I, have, I haven't been complaining at all, actually. I, I told them to be quiet and listen. What's going on here? Is God being unfair? No. What we have here is the reality that Moses, as mediator between God and his people, so closely identifies with the people that God tells Moses, hey, you need to stop complaining. It's the people that are complaining. It's the people that don't believe. It's the people that fear. And yet Moses is so closely identified with them that God addresses him as though he is guilty. And then we move on and see again how God closely identifies with Moses in verse 21. He commands Moses, um, that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back. Uh, their actions are so in tandem that when Moses acts as he's commanded, God acts. Moses is so closely identified with God that his actions lead to God's saving power. And uh, this is important because this is the way God chooses to work, through people, through a mediator. And this is especially important for understanding the nature of uh, salvation through Jesus. Uh, this is what Jesus does. He closely identifies with his people so that when God sees him, he sees our guilt. And he works through Jesus to save. Now, um, we see that God is present. We need to see God is present. But that's not the only thing we need to see. We need to lastly see that God saves completely. And uh, he saves completely in the sense that uh, they don't lift one finger. The Israelites don't lift one finger in this whole text. Do you see them do anything except for complain? In verses 13 and 14, Moses says to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he'll work for you today. The Egyptians whom you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. They contribute jack, squat, zilch, nada. 
zero. They don't do a thing. And despite the fact they don't do a thing, not one of them is left. Not one lingers. Not one enemy. Not one opponent. As God says in verse 14, there won't be a single one left. And we see it come true in verses 28. In verse 28 we read, The waters returned and covered the chariots, all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them. Not one remained. And just to to press the point home, and I don't think the text is being morbid. We're doing this for the benefit of the people. Verse 30, we read, Israel saw the Israelites. He saw the Egyptians. Saw them dead. Washed up on the seashore. There they are. Every single one of them. Not one of them escaped. A couple things about this text that people find objectionable, perhaps. And uh, perhaps if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, or even if you are a Christian, you have trouble with some of these things. One, the miraculous nature. Um, am I really supposed to believe that God's put a sea and people walk through it? And am I really supposed to be impressed by a God that utterly destroys an entire army? And uh, the simple answer, frankly, is uh, yes. Um, now, there's a thicker reasons behind that, uh, but this, the scriptures are basically the story of a God who is committed to justice. And uh, what we have in the destruction of the Egyptian army is justice. They were evil. They threw innocent children into the Nile. They were opposed to God's people. They were cruel. They had every opportunity. God showed them ten different times that he was king, that he was powerful. They could have listened. They could have repented. They could have not pursued the people. They chose to. They got what was deserved of them. And then secondly, regarding the supernatural nature of the act, uh, well, uh, God is out to get glory. He's out to get glory. He wants people to know what he's like, that he's more powerful than Pharaoh, that he's the real king, the true king. He's out to show off. And the supernatural here is not unnatural. It's not like he turns the Red Sea into Kool-Aid or uh, something. He's using natural means, wind and water, supernaturally to do his work. This is what all the miracles are like. And... um, it's important to, to grasp this, that God really is completely saving his people miraculously. Uh, there's a story of a, of, a, of a pastor, a minister, who uh, didn't believe in the miraculous, preaching at a, in an African-American church that did believe the Bible. And somehow he referenced the Red Sea crossing. At this point, someone shouted out, Praise the Lord! Taking them children through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle! The minister tried to contain his anger and condescendingly explained, It wasn't really a sea. It was a reedy marsh. It was at low tide. It was only six inches deep. To which someone else responded, Praise the Lord! Drowning all those Egyptians in six inches of water. (laughs) What a mighty miracle! Uh, One way or the other, this text is miraculous, and God's bringing judgment. In order to show His glory, not being unnecessarily morbid, God's not rubbing it in. Uh, This is a mighty miracle, because this is what it takes for God to save His people, and it's what God needs in order to show his people that re- he really is the great king. Not only to set them free from the tyranny of Pharaoh, but from the tyranny of their own fear. They need to see this in order to know that God is the real true God. And they have nothing to fear. Just two things were required of the Israelites. God saved them completely. Two things were required. Well, they had to shut up and watch. But uh, they had to watch and then they had to walk. They had to watch what God was doing, and then walk. That was significant, right? I mean, it's a little frightening. Maybe some of you haven't made a walk of faith, and I don't mean by walk of faith like I'm going to call you up here. We're never going to do that in RUF, I promise. Never, ever. Um, if you have questions, you come and talk to me or some other student, and 
we'll sit down in a private place and talk about what's on your heart. Uh, but no, it's still frightening to walk between two walls of water. You have to believe that God is at work to save you. And that's what they had to do. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you're not sure if you're a Christian, you're not sure if you want to be a Christian, that's all fine. But what you do have here in the text is a nice little blueprint for what Christianity is all about. You don't have to perform. You don't save yourself. You don't have to get ready. You don't have to fix yourself. In Christianity, you have a God that does it all. He does it through a mediator in the person of Jesus, who, as God's very son, identified very closely with the Father, and then identified so closely with God's people that God saw in him their guilt. He bore their guilt. He took their guilt on himself and died death for them. He walked the deep, dangerous, dark path in their place, according to God's plan. And he made a way for us to cross. He made a way for us to cross from death and slavery into new life and freedom. It's a way that remains open. It's not a door you have to open. It's not a trail you have to blaze. It's a path that he opened. And all you have to do is see it and trust him. So Red, played by Morgan Freeman, uh, after his third or fourth parole, is finally granted parole. His third or fourth parole hearing is granted parole. And he struggles with the reality of institutionalization himself. He gets a job, doesn't do it very well. He gets an apartment, he doesn't live very well. He actually begins to possibly contemplate taking his own life as the other guy had. And uh, he sort of remembers uh, a couple of things. He remembers his friend Andy saying, you have to get busy living or get busy dying. And he remembered the promise that Andy his friend who had escaped earlier made to him. But there was a completely different, free kind of life available to him if he wanted it. He would just have to leap over some walls. And uh, Red describes at the end of the movie, and it's this beautiful, moving scene. I'm not going to get emotional. Um, And uh, I wish I could say it like Morgan Freeman. That would be awesome. Um, He writes, I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. The free man at the start of a journey. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope I see my friend. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it's been in my dreams. I hope. So let me ask you a question. It's a very simple one. Is your life characterized by hope? Or by fear? Are you afraid? Afraid of freedom. Afraid of the kind of life God would have for you if only you had enough faith to jump. If only you didn't have to know it was on the other side every moment. If only you were brave enough to be free from the security of your old life. Are you afraid? Afraid to leave your old life and the security and the pleasures it gives you? Are you afraid? simple advice stop listen to your heart listen to your complaining listen to your rehearsal see there the gods and the idols and the fears that you serve and no you don't have to you don't have to God has made a way Jesus has made a way completely on his own a way of salvation and freedom for you 
you may be inundated at the moment with all these concerns. What about my future? Will anyone love me? What am I going to study? I don't know the answer to a single one of those. But in some ways, I'm not saying they're not important. The most important thing for you to see is you have a God that loves you so much that he made a complete way of salvation for you. You have a completely new life and existence available to you. Completely new life available to you. Stop living in fear. You're free. Let's pray together.